Hello, welcome. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. As the pioneer in the field of spatial biology, Nanostring enables scientists to see the multiomic expression of genes and proteins in the natural context of tissue structure. In this podcast series, we present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share initiatives to engage and support them. In this new Spatial Navigator episode, we speak to a spatial pioneer, Professor Charocchi. She's a professor at the Azienda Unita Sanitaria Locale and Cancer Research Institute of Reggio Emilia in Italy. She shares with us her passion for translational oncology and how she got started as a group leader. During this podcast, we learn how her current work on spatial transcriptomics dissects pleural mesothelioma heterogeneity and is directly serving her community. So we are here today with Professor Alessia Ciarocchi. She's the head of the Laboratory of Translational Research. Alessia, thank you so much for having us today for this podcast episode. So while we get started, can you give an introduction of yourself and the research that your team is doing? Thank you very much, first of all, for having us and this uh, beautiful broadcast and for giving us the opportunity to share with you our experience. My name is Alessia, as you said, I am a molecular biologist and decided to become a molecular biologist quite early during my education track, basically at the high school when I got really fascinated by perfection of molecular mechanisms that were at the basis of uh, cell biology. And from there on, for me, it was easy to choose the education path. So I got my degree in biology at the University of Bologna. And then I took in the University of Bologna my PhD, where I worked with signal transduction, real molecular biology. And the very important thing in this part of my education, it was the PI of that the following during this experience, which was who was a, a really pioneer of the molecular biology analysis back in the 50s. So for me, it was an inspiration, a figure of inspiration. After my PhD, I had the great opportunity of having a PhD experience in the US, where I worked at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And that experience was for me very important because, uh, first of all, I was in a very beautiful city and I left in New York uh, part of my heart, but also was a tremendous experience on the professional side. I get the opportunity of sharing my research and learning from very important scientists, Nobel Prize. And it was all in a very sharing environment and very easy environment. And this was very important for my growth as person, as a scientist. And after that experience, I got back to Italy where I had the opportunity of starting my research in a very young institution because our institution is a quite a young institution. And now I work within one of the excellent center of the Ministry of Health, research center of the Ministry of Health. And this activity was starting basically when I came back from the US. And what I loved in coming back to Reggio Emilia was the fact that everything was to be created and I could be part of this creation. And so it was like having a wait pages and uh, start writing on that. Back at the time, I started with a very small group of three peoples And then we grew up and from 2015, I was appointed head of the entire structure. So now I lead a very beautiful team of 25 people, young people, mainly women that are very combative, very strong. And I'm really grateful for the people I had the opportunity of meet during this experience together. We try to do our best day by day. 
Thank you for sharing. And I think it was just to come back to what you said. I think it's a very privileged position to be back in your country and be able to then shape up a little bit or give your ideas and model the way that the structure was going to be built. So can you comment also about that? Like what were your expectations? What are the surprises or things that didn't happen exactly the way you were thinking? But now if you reflect back, is there something that you would do differently or that you would give advice for somebody who is now going to be starting? Sometimes when I look back, uh, I feel like crazy. I remember when I came back from the US, I applied for a very important grant and I was lucky enough to go on the final phases of uh, the evaluation. So I went to present my data to the commission and the commission was like quite disturbed by the fact that I was choosing at the time to come back from an experience like the one I did in the US, moving to a brand new institution where nothing basic was already in place. And that, according to them, was a kind of lack of uh, maturity. They couldn't see, uh, as I did at that time, like a very bad uh, on my career and the possibility of really trying trying to make my think about science uh, coming to reality. And so if I look back at that time, sure, it was crazy because really we had to build everything here, but there was the mood and the, and the strength and the intention and it was really beautiful to be even in the middle of difficulties part of that movement. And sure, it's difficult to make the type of science we do in uh, an Italian institution, in particular in an institution like ours that move within the health system, because the health system and in general research in Italy wants to have products very quickly. And our science is from the basic part of the science. We try to understand how the system works. So not all the science we do is really making to patients because we have a step uh, before that kind of translational research. And it was difficult at the beginning to explain that our work uh, could be a value, an added value to the clinical research that the institution was doing. So the very difficult part at the beginning of this journey, it was uh, the cultural one, mm. trying to explain people that uh, our research was another piece of value to the complexity of the institutional research. After uh, all these years, and thanks also to the design we gave to the activities we are performing, which was really focused from the beginning, now really are uh, an indispensable part of our, uh, of our institution. And we represent uh, a reference point to many clinicians that wants to understand more about the clinical uh, aspects of the disease they deal with. So now our laboratory works in a kind of uh, dual way. We have a good part of our activity, which is on basic science. So we usually use, uh, we are interested in the genome and the way the genome works during cancer progression. And so we generated hypothesis based on our approach in the model. And then we have the great opportunity of getting out of the lab and meet our friends in clinics and ask them for help to see if what we have developed or understood in our experimental work in the lab is true in the real life they face. So we can get access to very important court of patients to validate our hypothesis. On the other side, we work as a support team for those clinicians that during life, during their daily life, face a lot of challenges because cancer is not an easy disease. Mm -hmm. So they can come to our lab and say, 
There is something I can understand based on what I know. Can we do something about this? So we just add deepness to their variables. Uh, basically, when you classify patients, for example, based on clinical variables, you have discrete entities and you can put your patients in a class or in another, but uh, you cannot really catch the gray shadows that is indeed uh, in this kind of disease. So we just uh, increase the resolution of this information by applying omics technology. And so it can be mutational analysis, it can be transcriptomes, it can be chromatin organization, so just uh, adding variables that can help understanding the heterogeneity of cancer in a more deep way. So in that kind of science, we, we work like a kind of technical support for the clinician idea. And this is a way I think of more than More than technical support, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> don't but... sell yourself short. I think <laughs> no, no. I think you are making a connection between right yeah. the signaling pathways and your passion for molecular biology with this application really to get closer to the patients, and that's the the bridge that you're making. This is the very funny part of working in an institution like ours, which is a medium institute in terms of numbers and dimension, but it's also a place where you still have the opportunity of making connection and sit together with clinicians in a very open way and sharing experience and sharing competencies and sharing ideas. And this is something is very beautiful for a lab like ours that deals with molecules is very, very, very important. So I think it was good that you took this decision, basically. At the beginning, it was a challenge to go back there and to start from scratch. But from what you are telling us now, it was the right decision. You were not immature. You proved them <laughs> wrong, basically. And now you are succeeding in producing very, very good quality science. And I think we can now go a little bit more in detail into... We talked about translational oncology. So basically, your training from the US together with the training that you got uh, in Italy at the beginning of your PhD, that now you are combining in the context of real world questions for patients. So can you tell us what is the main question, if there is one, or maybe there are more than one that your lab now is trying to answer? And then the example that comes after that is guiding us a little bit through your latest publication on malignant pleural mesothelioma. Yeah, it's a, yeah, a complicated name for, for a rare cancer, but also a very aggressive one that, if I understood well, has no treatment, is very heterogeneous. So I go back to the first part of your question. And basically, our focus, the project we carry in the lab, have uh, as main objective the understanding of the genome function. I think that the genome is a very fascinating universe. Uh, we start thinking about the genome simply as this, a sequence of genes, a linear sequence of letters that make genes that code for proteins. So that was the function that when I study in science uh, was uh, the idea about the genome. Now we know that this is not true and genome is really a very three-dimensional and complicated uh, universe, which is at the end, uh, the center of decision-making of cells and life being. And now we know that the real function of genome uh, is surely of coding for proteins, but the coding genes uh, is just lying a very small and limited part of the genome, no more than 2%. So what is very intriguing for us now is like uh, looking in that part of the genome that does not code for, uh, for, uh, for protein, but has a very important function. Now we know that genome, uh, based basically 
organized life just modulating in a very fine way gene expression and uh, it does so through many different aspects like by assembly great uh, and large uh, complex of proteins in specific place of the genome to turn on or down specific genes, but it does so also through the transcription of RNA that do not code for protein, but works in a very amazing way in terms of organizing the cells. So all this complexity, when you came down to a disease like cancer, is really is important because yes. we are used to think to cancer like it is a static disease. You talk about cancer and you talk about mutation, but uh, mutation is something that is there or is not there, but cancer is a very plastic entity. And the amazing thing about cancer is that uh, it can change completely in terms of needs and in terms of capacity in time and in space. And until now, we basically have approached cancer like homogeneous uh, entity, but it's not like that. And so uh, if you really want to catch up with this disease that is always uh, a step ahead of our treatment and our cure, we need to bring into the table, so into the um, on the table, into the understanding of this disease, this complexity. And to do this, we need to introduce new approaches and integrate these approaches with the one we used to use in order to really trying to assess this complexity. And basically, what this is what uh, we have done with the study you were mentioning with our latest publication on mesothelioma. We took advantage of a special transcriptomic approach to the geomix, trying to having a different approach to the disease. I go back uh, to the little background on the disease because I think it's important to understand what we have done uh, with the study. So Alessia, tell us a little bit why you chose this uh, malignant pleural mesothelioma or MPM. I want to understand if you picked it because you knew that this was a heterogeneous and difficult disease. So you could then bring your ideas of applying new approaches uh, to this disease, or this is something that came to you because the clinicians were looking for answers and they came to you saying, Alessia, how can molecular biology and spatial transcriptomics help us understand and look for better biomarkers or some ideas on how we can treat this disease? Basically both, meaning that the reason why we started the working on MPM uh, are several. First of all, uh, as you were mentioning before, MPM is a very aggressive disease, a very little disease. For this disease, we really don't have uh, an effective treatment right now. So we need urgently to find new way uh, to approach this disease. Also because uh, even if MPM is caused primarily by asbestos exposure, which is a silicate that was very much used in the 70s and 80s and now is banned already from a couple of decades. This disease is a very long latency. So basically, we are now facing uh, the real peak of incidence of the disease. So we see many wow. patients having MPM and basically we have very few possibility to treat these patients. It's also a very aggressive disease, meaning that from the diagnosis, expectancy of life for these patients is not more than one year. So is really something that needs to be understand and quickly. And this is the clinical reason. Then there is a molecular reason. And the reason, the molecular reason is that from the point of view of molecular processes, MPM is a very fascinating system because uh, it really escapes the classical oncogenetic model. 
NPM does not really have driver mutations. And also asbestos, which is the agent causing NPM, does not induce DNA damage. It lies on the cells and just create this hyperinflammation situation and condition that stay there for years, basically modify epigenetically and then in terms of gene expression, the condition of the cells leading at the end to the development of a very aggressive disease in which the genome is completely messed up because you have very huge chromosomic alteration. And then there is a community reason. And basically, Regimilia was, until no long ago, the site of one asbestos factory. So we, in Italy, like other centers, like leading in the study of this disease. And MPM is a kind of community issue. And the community is very close to this kind of topics because many people here had uh, anyhow, possibility of uh, getting in touch with people that were exposed, patients or uh, friends that uh, knew someone who died because of MPM. So it was for us a kind of relevant uh, disease to start understanding. That's why we started working on this disease. And the reason why I decided to go with partial transcriptomic to face uh, this disease is, of course, due to the fact that uh, it's very challenging. We don't know too much about how this disease developed. And uh, I was quite of fascinated by the fact that this heterogeneity, it was also on the molecular aspects. Uh, so first of all, uh, when we talk about MPM, we have to say that we know three main histotypes that are basically subdivided uh, based on the differentiation degree of the cells. And so... Looking at the pathology, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the histological classification is currently the only, let's say, decision-making tool we have available because uh, basically the three histotype have a kind of different attitude for behavior and uh, decision-making is made on the basis of the histotype, even if this classification is very superficial and not effective. So the three histotype uh, reflect the degree of cell differentiation. So the most uh, differentiated histotype is called epithelioids because the cells still uh, have the, feel, the feature of the uh, epithelial original cells. cells. Exactly. Okay. And then on the other side uh, of the phenotype, we have the completely undifferentiated histotype, which is called sarcomatoids because the cells have lost completely any remembrance of an epithelial cells. The problem is that uh, the majority of lesion is in the middle. In between, there is what is called a biphasic mesothelioma, which is a mixture of both phenotype in different degree and different extent. And when you look at bulk transcriptomics for this histotype, you basically see the same things. You cannot really make a clear distinction. And you can find sarcomatoid feature into epithelial mesothelioma and vice versa, some traces of epithelioid histotype into the sarcomatoid one. And the majority of lesion is something in between, like a continuous of transcriptional changings from the two extreme situations. We decided to simplify this situation, thinking uh, at these things as an temporary evolution of the lesion. So we thought that this trans differentiation that make uh, the sarcomatoid lesion to appear is like something that starts from the epithelioid condition. So we could imagine that the epithelioid condition was uh, the original yeah. type. Ooh. And then the sarcomatoid one was uh, the end of this evolution. And we started analyzing the biphasic lesion because we could have all the phases of this transition inside this lesion. So we had 
area which were completely epithelioids, so could be the beginning of the story, areas that were completely sarcomatoids and were the end. And when we had in the middle area in which we had in tight connection, both component, the epithelioids okay. one together with the sarcomatoids one. And that's why spatial transcriptomics was for us a very added value because on that area, we could uh, uh, fragment the two components and analyze them in a separate way. We imagine basically that uh, these four types of ROI that we analyze could be like a kind of timing. And we did our uh, transcriptomics analysis and from the results, what we saw is that uh, it was quite like that, basically that the E area were clearly positioning in an, uh, a space within our uh, unsupervised analysis. The sarcomatoids was more on the left side and the component that came from the mixed area were in the middle to be defined. And then we started to go down on the mechanism looking for genes that were differentially expressed during this timing. And what was uh, evident for us that first of all, the analysis were conducted well because we could see all the, the genes involved in the in the phenotypic changes appearing yeah. like changes in the cell to cell adhesion marker of epithelial mesenchymal transition, transition. on the same direction so yeah. everything was fine what was was the, the real surprise was that and we were not expecting that when we looked at the genes that were enriching the sarcomatoids component and were growing uh, steadily over the transition we found that a lot of genes were involved in immune system and the thing that surprised us the most is that, first of all, um, there was an idea that the immune system was involved, but not so clearly as it came out from our study. And the thing that was uh, really interesting for us is that we saw a kind of opposite wave of uh, associating because we saw that the immune system genes were basically upregulated very much in the sarcomatoid components. We saw really a lot of genes involved in uh, many phases of the immune response, including native immune immunity, antigen-presenting cells, and all were... The tissue microphages, right? You also see activated right. microphages. And yeah. this is something that was like, the immune system is supposed to slow down the disease. So why we see all this upregulation in the most aggressive part of the disease? And uh, the first thing we thought is that indeed this immune system was somehow recruited the uh, to this site uh, because of the huge inflammation asbestos in use. And it was something that is like inside uh, the mechanism of the disease, but maybe that the cells that were recruited there were in a kind of uh, silent uh, or uh, not exhausted. Active. Exhausted, or, exactly. Mm, Exhausted mm. phenotype. And indeed, was this is what we observed because we saw that together with many markers of a factor, T cells, B cells, we saw the, uh, a very higher expression growing steadily during through all the transdifferentiation of uh, uh, immunocheckpoint proteins, which means that even if they were there, these cells likely are uh, like blocked in their action against the tumor cells. And uh, from one one side, we tried to go a little bit deep about uh, which could be the molecular mechanism that drove them there. And what we saw is that we had a very huge amount of recruition of macrophages 
in the sarcomatoid components. And these macrophages were basically enriched in the M2 phenotype, mm. which is known to have an immunosuppressive function. Exactly. And the M2 polarization is basically induced mainly by TGF-beta exposure. And TGF-beta is also the cytokine that drives epithelial to mesenchymal transition, which is a very basic process in the transdifferentiation of uh, mesothelioma cells. And so we looked at the TGF-beta, we saw that uh, indeed is very much increased uh, during the transition toward the sarcomatoid component. And there, it, the expression of these cytokines really correlates strongly with the M2 polarization of the macrophages. And this was interesting because when we looked at survival curve of the patients, both in our court and in the public available database, TGF-beta was one of the genes correlating very much with the reduced disease survival for patients. So basically... Bad prognosis. But yeah, yeah, bad prognosis for patients. So the other thing that was interesting, and this is something I think we have to take with us in the future of this project, is that we couldn't see classical immune checkpoint activated or repressed. Basically, we saw very few expression of PD-1 and PD-1 and PD-2, and not so much differences in the progression of the disease. We saw basically other and very important immunocheckpoint that we know now because of the... CD68, right? I remember CD68. CD68, or... I think, is the, the 86. 86. CD86. No, no problem. CD86. And also we had these two receptor, a ligand, a receptor and a ligand that uh, block the function of the T cells. So right. this is important because immunotherapy may be a very important resources for these patients. But what we know now is that immunotherapy has a very low rate of response on uh, patients, on mesothelioma patients. At this time, we don't know which are the patients that respond to immunotherapy and why they respond or they do not respond. And the thing is that current immunotherapies that we are using are targeting uh, yeah, P- PD-1 or the ones yes. that are not expressed. Yeah. So this makes so sense. So maybe uh, I think uh, one of the future application of the results of this uh, work is to see if uh, different targets and different inhibitors may be used in this disease to make immunotherapy improve life exactly. of this Exactly. Also because you are you are showing how also the immune system is involved even in the step before which is the progression. Yeah. So exactly. hopefully you could also act let's say early onwards before this phenotype even exists and it's sort of because I I see sort of two roles for the immune system like one really at, at the origin or helping this evolution and then another one keeping this malignancy and making it more aggressive right once it's established to find biomarkers or to find a way to catch also the patients in this sort of early phase right I don't that know is something, if, yeah. That, yeah that is something actually that we would like to do in the next future because as you said our study basically point out some candidates for early biomarkers of course we have to see if these are applicable and in that condition in this way the fact that we see several cytokines and a lot of immunoregulating genes to be associated with the progression of 
the disease make us think that maybe we can find some of this marker even in the blood or in fluids that may be analyzed easier than any kind of biopsy. So to do this, we have to face a very challenge activities in the next years because we have to compare a lot of things and see if the candidates can be detected in an effective way in the other district of the body. And this is the added value of working in an hospital like, like we do, because uh, in collaboration with the clinician and with our institutional biobank, we really can get access to a lot of biological materials that, uh, thanks to the technologies we have now in the lab, can really make the difference in uh, trying to understand what is going on in this disease. Awesome. This is really great. And also, I'm thinking that for immunotherapy, what you just said, that maybe the, um, let's say, the normal standard immunotherapy against like PD, uh, PD-1 and PD-L1 may not work, but there may be others that are being tested, like new molecules are being exactly. developed all the time. And then finding the right biomarker that can stratify the patients to say these are patients are more likely to respond um, I think the connection that you have with the clinicians, it's also a very, you know, an added value to then sort of be able to guide patients and, and ideas on how to move from there, right? And out of curiosity, because we are also talking about how dynamic the process is, do you have also a mouse model or some kind of model where you can really follow the plasticity and the dynamics or you are stuck with, uh, let's say, humans. So we have to be stuck with human, first of all, because our institution doesn't have a mouse house. So we basically oh. cannot have a mouse model. But for what I know, does not really exist a, a mouse model that uh, recapitulates this disease because it's really quite peculiar. Uh, it's a quite peculiar disease in terms of effects. So I would say that having the opportunity of analyze uh, patients uh, is really the most important thing right now. The other thing is that uh, we are very engaged in trying to derive uh, ex vivo model from patients that uh, can uh, somehow recapitulate in an easier way. Uh, not really the uh, development of the disease, but the dynamics that takes place within the disease, between the cells, uh, between the cells and the microenvironment components, uh, within the cells and the immune system. And it's, it's not going to be easy because currently there is not uh, very much uh, models, uh, 3D models for uh, ex vivo model for MPM, but uh, we are working on that also. Some kind of organoids or tumoroids, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. This is also very much the trend at the moment. Can you also comment on the fact that you combined both, let's say, the spatial approach using uh, Geomics Digital Spatial Profiler, where you could really spatially pick these different cell types, let's say the, from the epithelial to the sarcomatoid, but also then you moved uh, forward with the validation using Encounter. So can you comment on the, on the value of this combination and why you chose this and what sure. allowed you to identify so first of all, if you allow me, I go a step backwards uh, and sure. uh, try to explain why we decided to invest on these technologies. Because basically, our institution, as I said before, is a kind of young institution. Our biobank started like a few years ago. But in the meantime, uh, our pathology units has a very huge archive uh, and which we have very precious materials uh, like collected uh, over the years of activity of our hospital. 
And the problem is that this material is uh, like fixed in formalin and embedded in paraffin. And uh, the majority of uh, omics approach that deal with the transcription cannot really work well on, uh, on, on this kind of materials, especially when the material is quite old. So when we got in touch with this technology, the fact that we could avoid amplification from that material and just count uh, the RNA molecules that are on the tissue without introducing bias was for us uh, very important. And that's why we decided to, to go in that direction together with other technologies that we have in the lab, but for us it was quite important. And uh, basically, I think that at least uh, in the way we use them, both the Geomix and uh, Encounter, they are a complementary technologies. Uh, Geomix is designed to go very deep, uh, but on few samples. It's built to analyze several areas within a single slide, single tumor, so you cannot process too many patients with this approach. On the other side, uh, when you do an, an analysis like the one we did, you need to validate it uh, on a larger court. You cannot just say something analyzing 8, 10, 12 patients. You need to have a larger number to say, okay, this is what is really happening. On the other side, the encounter can reach much more samples, but uh, does not have the uh, deepness and the resolution of the geomix. So, so you can just derive hypothesis, but it's always superficial and not so complete as the one you get to be the geomix. So basically, we use them like this. We generate hypotheses using the powerful of the geomix, and then we validate in a larger court uh, the most representative genes, the one we feel are the most informative on larger courts. And this is what we have done also in the mesothelioma paper, where basically we started on a small court of biphasic NPM, and then we analyzed by encounter the most representative pathway in almost 90 MPM patients through the encounter, through a, a custom panel that we designed and uh, synthesized uh, through the nanostring. And you have not tried doing sort of a tissue microarray that you can also use with geomics. That's a possibility. But I understand that if the disease is very heterogeneous, you need to think, pick, uh, think... it's, it's tricky. I think, yeah. yeah, that's the point, uh, mm. basically. We haven't, mm. we haven't done, we haven't used geomix on tissue microarray, but I think uh, it may be a kind of uh, reduction of the powerfulness of this uh, application, because when you do a tissue microarray, basically, punch a very small area of the tumor. That's why you would do a special transcriptomics on something that is already biased by the choice you have made uh, upstream. Previously, right, yeah. I think that is really a, a technology that can give you a lot of information uh, on the real complexity of the tissue. So it's very funny. This is something we are really, really enjoying, like sampling a lot of uh, area from the same tissue and see really how the molecular dynamics change inside the tissue itself. Yeah, you have like intra-heterogeneity uh, within yes. the tissue, but also between patients. So you have to yeah, deal exactly. with that, right? Yeah, so that's right. Uh, also the experimental design has to also match the complexity of the right. disease. So this right. makes sense. I wanted to also see where this is going next. Basically, I think this is the first time that you are showing the implication of the immune and the inflammation processes happening in the pathology. You are showing evidence for TGF beta, right, playing a strong role in the, in the progression. And we alluded a little bit about this. Are you going more in the direction of identifying biomarkers or 
you think that what you have is also a good starting point for clinical trials? What are the perspectives? Where do you see this, this going? So it's a kind of complicated disease. First of all, I think uh, we need to stick on our area of competence. So basically what we wanted to do on the mesothelioma in the next future is really trying to understand much better how it works. And we are doing this. Uh, we are just opening a new, brand new area on non-coding transcripts in uh, MPM and on chromatin organization during the, the progression of the disease. And this from the basic part. And it's something that we we are really investing a lot on this. On the translational part, I think that now the very important thing is we just uh, gave uh, the rationale for starting immunosystem in uh, MPM. We just saw this, uh, this thing now. Now we have to understand how it really works. If is the TGF beta coming first uh, or is the inflammation that drives secretion, if the matrix involved and uh, also I think it's very important to see in the patients how this, uh, uh, this system is evolving. So at this time, uh, we, we are very much into this, trying to define the model the way it works. And to do so, as I said before, we are trying to uh, collect several kinds of uh, biological samples to explore deep uh, this heterogeneity. And also we're trying to derive an uh, ex vivo model to have something we may play with in an easier way in terms of uh, genetic manipulation and characterization of the molecular mechanism. That's what I see in the next three, four years. For sure, something we would love to do and see if this will be possible through the collaboration with our clinician is to see whether the candidate we have high evidence through the studies is indeed somehow stratifying patients that respond or not to immunotherapy. And this could be done already with the trials that are already active. And also, it would be very nice to see in this course if the immunocheckpoint we have observed has somehow discriminating between responder and responder. So this is something also we wanted to do in the next future. I love it. I think this is a good way to wrap up the podcast. I want to thank you again for your time. I, I love this idea of combining molecular with uh, a real need for the patients and the story that you told about Reggio Emilia being a place that is actually very much affected by, by this cancer. It's also making a very good connection between your passion, but also feeling that you are contributing to something bigger, right? And that the community is expecting something coming out of your research. So that is actually yeah, a very nice challenge to rise up to. And I'm sure that you are a very good role model for other researchers, um, women or, yeah. If something that is keeping us uh, on the point, we cannot, uh, we cannot, get distracted. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> we need to focus because there are people waiting for us. And and your results, um, I think, are getting one step you know, further and closer, perhaps, to providing a, a real solution for the patients, at least hope, right? Because yeah. we know, um, and I think it's, it's, it's not the only example, because we see it in a lot of different like whether it's pancreatic cancer or glioblastoma or a lot of these heterogeneous cancers for which there is practically no hope for the patients, um, how much um, spatial biology is helping and making an impact in the real life, right? It's not only in the labs. So, and I think yours is a very good example of that. And yeah, and I wanted to, to thank you for your work and for taking the time to 
stuck to us today. I, I don't know if you have a f few words to, to wrap up. I think that uh, the work of each of us uh, is just to add uh, small pieces to a more uh, to a wider puzzle. Uh, we cannot cure cancer. Nobody of us can cure cancer alone, uh, not an institution, not a single group. Anyone just can contribute to the creation of a complex picture by adding a, a small piece. That's what I think about our work. It's just one of the evidence that are building the complex picture of this disease and giving the opportunity of deriving new tool for patients. So we need to look at our work, I think, in this way, just being part of a bigger system and contribute to that by adding a small value. Yeah, another break to, to the world. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's a nice way to wrap the, the episode. Thank you again. Thanks uh, a lot for everything. Thanks for having us, for the time you dedicated us. For sure. And thank you for listening, those who are still with us. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you'd like to know about Nanostring products or contact us, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter, the links to which are in the description. Thank you.